What blessed assurance to be able to be in the presence of the Lord and read His Word and open His Word publicly and read freely. What blessed assurance we have this morning of celebrating, remembering, commemorating His death, His burial, His resurrection. What a blessed assurance to be in the company of God's people to open His Word like this. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning as we come to you, we thank you for your grace to us. We realize that it's only because of your mercy that we do not stand judged before you this morning. It's only because of your grace that you have poured out all this goodness upon us. And we thank you that it has been accomplished by your Son, Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has been rejected, despised, ridiculed, hated. This morning is our Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. And as we think about him this morning, may our hearts not only be encouraged to follow hard after him, but that may, may we be obedient to be like him and to serve you in all ways as he has done. We ask you for his grace in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. Okay, something is um, not working. Are we good? Was it the car? Are you sure it was a car? So between that car and Taryn playing bass and this, I'm confused. All right, okay. Somebody needs to ban that guy from Deep River. This morning we are going to take a, uh, uh, continue to take a break from Colossians. Uh, I've been going through Colossians for a little while, as those of you who come here regularly know. I haven't been in this pulpit since September, I think it is. We had many blessings by having visiting speakers, but this morning I'm going to do a topical uh, sermon, and uh, I'll give you the reasons shortly, but let's read where we're going to preach from this morning. The sermon's title is the inauguration of the God-man, and we'll be reading from Luke chapter 2, from verses 39 to 52. And let us read from verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but, th but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why are you looking for me? You do not know that I must be in my father's house. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We pray the Lord's blessing on this further reading of his word today as we consider some thoughts about this one who we know as our Lord and Savior. I was motivated to speak on this subject this morning uh, for a number of things. Wednesday in a Bible study, we engage with a bit about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we were coming out of the, out of the sermon of last Sunday on John the Baptist as he stands in the, in the Jordan River and he sees the Lord Jesus on the banks of the Jordan. And Jesus' cousin sees him probably for the first time as an adult man and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. And there was kind of a discussion as to how did John recognize him? What was it about him that was so distinctive that he stood out amongst the crowd? What was it about him that made him different to the rest? And we learned and saw that there was nothing that made him stand out from the other men from a human perspective. John recognized him. 
because John was indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit revealed him to John at the time. But if you were not indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you used to look at the crowd where Jesus was on the banks of the Jordan, you'd probably not have told him from any other Middle Eastern Jewish man at the time. Was he significant? Absolutely. Was it outwardly obvious? Absolutely not. And so that confusion we build in our minds as we picture in our minds on this side of history after having the full scriptures in our hand and now being exposed to caricatures, paintings, drawings, and movies of Jesus Christ, we have a picture in our head of what he looks like. Even now, you're seeing the picture in your head. Even now, you're trying to not think about it, and yet it's right there because we see him in a certain way. Soft, well-manicured well beard, glowing white robe, kind of walking, half-floating amongst crowds. And that's how we see him, and that's how the world sees him. In fact, it was his, his lack of distinctiveness and the fact that there's very little recorded about him in the silent years, which we'll talk about shortly, that many women have taken upon themselves to create supernatural things about him just to make him look more real. And what it has done is detracted from his glory, it's minimized his deity, and has made him a man that he never has been. There are things like stories about him being a boy and playing in the river and making doves of clay. And when he was accused of doing that on the Sabbath, in order to escape being accused of doing something on the Sabbath, he waved his hands and the clay doves turned into living doves and flew away. Sounds fantastic, because it is. It's totally unreal. He stole, he stole the story about him working in the carpenter shop with his father Joseph. And by mistake, Joseph cut one plank shorter than the other. And he needed both of them the same length. And so Jesus, as a boy, pulls the planks apart. So he becomes the same length. And so he gives his father and says, well, now you can finish your project. Sounds absolutely fantastic because it is. It's totally imagined. And so we know so little about Jesus between his birth and his first two to three years of his life and the time that he appears on the banks of the Jordan at 30 years of age, a man embarking on three years of his itinerant ministry as a teacher and as God the Son amongst men in Judea. A lot is said about his birth, uh, what happened around his birth. There's a lot said by Matthew especially concerning those events. And so we have quite a full picture of his conception, which was miraculous, up until his return from Egypt when King Herod died and they come back and go to Nazareth. We are, we are silent, the Bible is silent on his life for almost 30 years. And then suddenly he bursts on the banks of the Jordan, a fully grown man, coming as were out of nowhere and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So what happened between? What is known about him in those years so often called the silent years? And is it significant to know about him? Is it necessary to think about that? Is it something we should engage with, or is it just maybe a passing moment in his life that is good enough as a Sunday school story, but not meaningful to us as adults? The first part of his life covers just over two years from his birth, when he comes back from Egypt, maybe a bit more, almost like closer to three years. The last part of his life, from 30 to 33, he walks around preaching the kingdom. So we have six years of his life pictured at the beginning and at the end. And here in the middle, in Luke's gospel, we have a mere 10 days or maybe two weeks of the entire rest of his life. And so this morning, we are going to endeavor to see that in Luke chapter 2, verses 39 to 52, we get three glimpses into the life of the boy Jesus as he engages with his parents and the spiritual leaders while celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem at the age of 12 and displays both his deity and his humanity by things that he learned. My outline for this morning is, number one, the relationships of the boy Jesus, verses 39 to 45. Number two, the revelation of the boy Jesus, verses 46 to 50. And number three, the resoluteness of the boy Jesus, verses 51 to 52. And as we look at this relationship of the 
of, of the boy Jesus, we will look at this over uh, three sections. The favor of his heavenly father, the faithfulness of his earthly father, and the fear of his apprehensive parents. Verse 39, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Matthew and Luke are the only two Gospels to give any details about the birth and early child of Jesus. We just said that. Matthew 20, chapter 2, verse 22 gives the account of Jesus' family turning from Egypt after the death of Herod to the great. And they come back from Egypt to settle in Nazareth. And Luke chapter 2, verse 39, we read it this morning, picks up from that very point. It picks up the narrative from the point where Matthew kind of starts segueing out of the story about Jesus. And between these two Gospels, we are provided with significant details about the miraculous nature of the conception of Jesus. The things that took place around his birth, his presentations in the temple, and attempts by his parents to preserve his life from those who sought to kill him. Until eventually, they settled down in the relative obscurity of a nondescript and unappealing town called Nazareth. Always remember the words of Nathaniel, what good thing could come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was no fancy town. Nobody sold up their, their house on the coast of Jordan and moved to Nazareth to retire. Never happened. No one aspired to living in Nazareth to build a career. It was a nondescript, one-horse town that people went to to disappear. Jesus went there to disappear. His parents were afraid that the one who had replaced uh, uh, Herod the Great would kill him, and so they went to Nazareth, the hometown of Mary's mother, which was a small town, a nondescript town, a town that no one cared about. In fact, Nathaniel spoke out what everybody thought about Nazareth. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? And it's here in this nondescript town that Luke says that Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is a significant claim to make. Late in this chapter, we will have to deal with how Jesus was able to engage intellectually, as a boy of 12, with the intellectual brain's trust of Jerusalem. He engaged with men who were schooled in the law, in the Torah, uh, for many, many years, they were competent, they were skilled, they were experts. And as a boy of 12, he engages with them on a level that left them flabbergasted. How did a boy, who was not quite yet a man, cause seasoned, experienced, theologically battle-hardened rabbis to sit back and scratch their heads in amazement at his questions and answers? He had them spinning. There's no doubt about that. And the answer to that conundrum has its roots Right here in verse 14. Many people say that, well, he was the son of God. That's why he had all the answers. Right? Really? Well, he was the son of God. And this is what this passage is going to prove. But that's why he had all the answers. They say, wasn't he omniscient? And because he was God, he therefore knew all things? Yes. As God the son he is, was, is, and always will be omniscient. And he always will know all things. But as this boy that's come from Nazareth to Jerusalem, a boy who was just 12 years of age, was he exercising omniscience as he engaged with those uh, spiritual leaders? No, he wasn't. Not if we believe Luke. The main point of this passage is certainly to reveal his divine nature. That is why this is inauguration of the God-man. But it also emphasizes his human nature and the events he experienced as a human being. This is significant. We must never lose sight that Jesus was truly and completely God in every sense that God is God. But he was at the same time truly and completely man as every man is a man. We must never diminish the one nor try and raise the other and try and make them meet halfway because Jesus doesn't do that. The scriptures don't do that. In fact, heresies have been built upon trying to make these two natures somehow mixed together so that the human becomes a bit more divine, and by doing that, the divine eventually becomes more human. That is heretical. Jesus was God. Jesus was man, both at the same time. 
and he lived at both those lives exactly as he was required to do. When he was required to be God, he was God. And when he was required to be man, he was man. The main point of this passage is certain to reveal his divine nature, but it also emphasizes his human nature and the events he experienced as a human being. There are things that Jesus could do that were possible only because of his divine nature, and we see that. We know that sometimes when the divine nature comes to the fore, when it becomes that which Jesus chooses to display through miraculous things. He raised the dead. Only God could do that. No man could. He gave sight to the blind. Only God could do that. He walked on water. Only God could do that. And as we see him doing those things, he depicts and displays his deity, his power as God to defy the laws of nature and to defy the laws that we are bound by. But there are also things he did that were done as an ordinary human being, using human faculties, submitting to the limitations of a human body. He grew hungry. Remember when? In the wilderness. He was being tempted, tested. He won his test. He came through with shining colors. But he was hungry after fasting 40 days. And did he turn stones into bread? He could have. But he didn't because he was there as a man, proving that under God's hand, and as one who was, who was uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that he was able to withstand and not submit to anything that a man would have done because of sin. He grew hungry, but he never turned stones into bread. He grew thirsty. And he didn't miraculously bring water out of a stone. He asked a Samaritan woman to put a jug into a well and give him water to drink. He grew tired. As a man, he grew tired, as all men do. And he struggled to find a place to lay his wearied head. Jesus was truly God. And it was veiled to most up at this point in time, as he grew up in Nazareth, they didn't see God walking in Nazareth, although they saw God walking in Nazareth. What they saw was just a boy, not realizing that this was the very boy who was the creator of the universe and in whom all things are held together. So what about this boy Jesus with a human body, with human emotions and human needs for development and a human mind? Did he rely on his divine attributes for answers in the temple? Did he kind of delve into that which was unknown to normal men to bring it out and so confuse and confound, well not confused, but certainly confound these leaders? The salient point of this passage is that even as he reveals his unique relationship with God, he does so by utilizing the knowledge he gained as a human being. This is the point verse 40 makes when it states, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Another way of stating that is, and he was growing and becoming strong by being filled with wisdom. This is a direct reference to his child development up until the age of 12. Like any other Jewish boy in Nazareth, Jesus would be taught the scriptures by his father. His father taking him every Saturday, every Sabbath to the synagogue. He would hear the scriptures read. And as we will see from this passage, Joseph was a righteous, just, God-fearing man. And as such, as a God-fearing Jew, he'd have taught his son the scriptures. Jesus would be exposed more and more to the word of God, and his mind would absorb all that was fed to him. But his, developing, his development in understanding, remembering, and analyzing the scriptures would surpass it of any other boy. The reason for this is that unlike them, other boys who learned the scriptures as he was taught, unlike them, he was not constrained or limited by a sinful nature. When he read the word, he did so with a heart that could truly worship God. His communication with his father was unhindered, was unimpeded, was open. He was able to do so because when he spoke to his father and he worshipped his father, there was no blockages in between. His prayers to the father for understanding would have been unhindered by sinful thoughts. The result was that he developed a knowledge and understanding of the scriptures that was, out, that was astounding. As a 12-year-old boy, his knowledge of the scriptures were phenomenal. The point we need to make here is that there was no magic in this knowledge, no miraculous embedding of information that he had not read. It wasn't that somebody had this injected into his head at the time when he could just whip it out and then appear to be better than those around him. Jesus got to the point at 12 years of age 
of having a grasp of the scriptures beyond anybody his age or older because he had daily, consistently, prayerfully slogged at reading and studying, analyzing and believing the word. He worked hard. He applied himself to reading, to learning and memorizing, just like any Jewish boy in his town, but with dramatically different outcomes. This is because while he was indistinguishable from any other 12-year-old boy in Nazareth, there was no other boy like him, being both God and man, and never permitting the one nature to dominate the other. Now this is something we cannot explain. The hypostatic union of Christ remains a mystery that we grapple with and get to the point of kind of getting it sorted out in our minds and then we lose it. We kind of lose the the connections because that is a, a union that has been brought about by the divine work of God. And if we could understand these deep things of God, then we would be God and we are not God. And so this human side of Jesus Christ and the divine side of God the Son exist in one person, the one never dominating the other. But each one coming to the fore as God chose to use his Son, and as his son permitted the father to use him as he obeyed the father's will. His human growth was natural, even while his divine nature was eternal. His development, both physical and mental, was normal. Even though as the eternal son of God, he never had to learn a single thing. He was the God-man. The one who created all things, and in whom all things held together, who at this point, of history, this very point of history, is learning to be a carpenter as a 12-year-old boy in the workshop of, his, of Joseph, his adoptive father. And he's learning to be wise by his daily reading of the Torah with his father, Joseph, a faithful father, who taught him the word as every Jewish father was required to teach his sons. And so we get to the second part of this first section, the faithfulness of, his, the faithfulness of his adoptive father. It is clear from this text that Joseph was a godly man and had remained grounded in his faith in God. This can be seen as we consider verses 41 to 43. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. We learn several things about Jesus' family from these verses. Number one, his parents were faithful and committed worshippers. But tells us they went up year or year by year. And this is the 12th year they're doing it, doing it since Jesus has been born. Number one, his parents were faithful and committed worshippers. There, there were three important celebrations in the Jewish calendar. Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles. And Jews made every effort to be at, at least those three high days in their festivals. We have no record of whether Joseph and Mary, as poor as they were, as, as, as far from Jerusalem as they were, and as, um, and as needy as they were, were able to attend all three during the year. But we do know from this text that they made a point of making the two to three day journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem year after year, consistently, faithfully, without any desire to leave, to stay behind one year. They faithfully went year by year to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Faithfully bringing the offering as meager as it may have been to the temple as they celebrated Passover. And they did not cut this stay short as many did. Many people went to this Passover, which would be, by the time you start and finish, you would have covered eight days. Uh, as a start on the Sabbath, they, they used the, the second Sabbath to finish it off. Although the feast may only have been seven days. The point is, for eight days, people were in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover which means that people from all of the country had put aside their work and their, whatever they had done, some would have their families behind, and some had left their cattle to, in the, in, in, and sheep in the, in the hands of somebody else, and they had concerns going on at home while they were in Jerusalem, and so many would have cut that stay short. They would have come and done as much as they could, as quick as they could, and got back home before the week had run out, but not Joseph and Mary. They stayed until the feast was over. This can be seen in verse 43, which states exactly that. Joseph was a devout and committed Jew, and he taught his family. He taught the boy Jesus by example. 
The faithfulness of Joseph uh, would have been key to providing Jesus access to the Torah so that he could grow and become strong by being filled with wisdom. That's how he gained his wisdom. He worked hard at gaining his wisdom. Was not God had inspired the writers of the scriptures? Absolutely. Was Jesus involved in that inspiration of the scriptures? Absolutely, as God the Son. It was the triune God that inspired the, those whom he chose to write. But when we get to this side of the scriptures, now in the hands of the Jewish nation as the Old Testament, Jesus, who had inspired the writing as God the Son, now learns the writing as an ordinary man. And his wisdom deepens, expands, and grows. Number two, we do not know if other children were brought along. Jesus had other brothers and sisters. You may not think so, but he did. He's got four brothers and at least more than two sisters. His brothers are named, his sisters are not. But Jesus had more than one brother. So it was a family. They're not mentioned. We're not sure whether which of them were alive at this time. We're not sure where they were. They, Luke doesn't include them. Perhaps we're at home. We've got no idea. But this we do know, that Jesus, in his, twelfth, in his twelfth year, was brought by his father and mother to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. No mention made of his siblings. No mention made of where they were. But only mention of Jesus was brought on this trip. Now, at this point, you will hear from many sermons and reading many books that Joseph was kind of preparing Jesus for his bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah at 13 years of age and Jesus was 12 was kind of the preparation for the bar mitzvah. Well, that's, uh, that's not quite true. We'll unpack this a bit on Wednesday night. But at this point in the history of the nation, there was no such thing as bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah is a 14th century event that was brought into practice by the Ashkenazi Jews in Europe and has become what it is today, uh, it was, did not exist. Nowhere in the scriptures would you ever find a reference to a bar mitzvah. But the transition from childhood into adolescence was certainly significant in the Jewish culture. That was a significant time in the age of a boy. Adolescent boys and girls could be betrothed and even married in their teens. Boys at 14 and girls at 13. Mary was probably in her mid-teens, 13, 14, 15, when she was pregnant with Jesus. Uh, that was unusual. It was the way Middle Eastern culture uh, existed. Sons and daughters were betrothed as teenagers. Eventually got married after a specific time, 12 months of betrothal, and they started families young. And so, while this was not his bar mitzvah, and we need to make sure that we, we understand that uh, this was a significant time in his development as a Jewish boy. Number three, Joseph and Mary waited till the end of the feast before packing their belongings to leave them. And again, we say that because it shows that Joseph and Mary were concerned that their son would be exposed to the full extent of the Passover as he learned what the Passover was about. Remember, the Passover was about him. The Passover was ultimately about him. When they sacrificed a lamb on Passover night, when they killed the lamb and when they uh, roast the lamb and when they eat the lamb and when they eat it with unleavened bread, it was a, a remembrance of the account that took place as the nation left Egypt, but it's a foreshadowing of a great fog at a Passover when he would become the lamb who would die, would shed his blood. It will be his body that would be broken. He become the Passover lamb. And so even as a boy of 12, he's learning about uh, the Passover, which would speak about his death and about his suffering at the hand of God. And that's why when the time that Jesus faces his death, when he's hours away from being crucified, he had a full comprehension of what was awaiting him. He completely understood in every finite detail, even as a man, what was awaiting him at the hand of sinners, as it, would, as it would take him, abuse him, torture him, uh, do to him what they could do as much as he could physically, he would suffer at their hands, and then he would be hung on the cross, and he would suffer at the hands of a thrice holy God who would judge him for your sins and mine, so that he could become our vicarious substitute. He had, he had a, picture, a full picture of that as he built up his knowledge through knowing the scriptures about him. 
And so Jesus uh, went to Jerusalem on the Passover and so was exposed again to learning, this, learning about the Passover as all other children. So we come to the end of this week and Joseph and Mary begin packing up all their belongings and they are joining the caravan of friends and family to start out their long journey back to Nazareth. That journey was about uh, I think it was 30 or 40 kilometers, not sure the exact number, but it was about uh, one day if a man walked fast, usually two days journey if a man walked at a reasonable pace. A caravan, I guess, would have taken two to three days. A caravan would be big, would have children, who have old people, who had infirm, would all be carried along in this caravan, so it was probably two to three days. And they begin ready to take this long journey back home. And the usual frenzy of preparing for a long and arduous trip ensued, gathering belongings, tying things up tightly, making sure there was enough water and food for several days, making sure that nothing was left behind except the boy, Jesus. The truth of the matter is that it was not so much that they left him behind as he chose to stay behind. This wasn't kind of a mishap within a family circle. This wasn't something that took place because uh, Jesus was naughty and careless and his parents were not concerned about him. We'll see that they were concerned, but there were reasons why they forgot him behind. This leads up to the point where we see the fear that overcame his apprehensive parents when they discovered Jesus is not with him. They pack up and they leave and it comes to a point where they discover he's not with him. So let's pick up the reading from the end of verse 43 as we just get a sense of what has gone on with his parents as they look for Jesus. His parents did not know it, that he was left behind. But supposing him to be the group, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Luke has a way of including phenomenal details as he unpacks this narrative of the life of Jesus to Theophilus. He's a doctor. He's used to detailed descriptions. He's got a good way of explaining things. But sometimes he flips. And he takes a significant, complex uh, event and wraps it down into a single sentence. And we need to dig to find out what is not hidden, but certainly contained in a short sentence when it says they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. It seems hard to believe that in this day and age, their parents could not realize the child was missing. Believe you me, it's not that hard to lose a child. I was probably about Josh's age, Josh in the front here, when I was lost. My father thought I was with my mother, and my mother thought I was with him on the beach. And he left the beach, and I wasn't looking, I ran on. If anybody knows Gordon's Bay Beach, we managed to get on the Gordon's Bay Beach. Those are not sure how, it's good old days. But nonetheless, I ran the entire length of the beach before I realized I was lost. Well, I soon realized I was lost, before I was found by some people along the beach. So I know what it was to be lost. And you lose people easily. You know how many parents have walked in the mall and said to the kids, don't do that, don't do that. Where are the keys, honey? Oops, where's Johnny? And Johnny's gone. We all know that. It's easy to lose kids. And in this situation, it was easier than you may imagine. Caravans such as these were made up of huge families, huge groups. The women and the children who would move in front of the caravan and in the back of the caravan would be filled with the men, the old men, the young men, as they would walk behind as protection, but also walk behind so that they could pace themselves, as they could pace themselves in sync with the women and children. And so the men would be behind as a group, the women in front, and the children with them. And so, as the young men and the older men walked behind, they were possibly also including in that group uh, teenagers. And it appears that Mary thought that Jesus was with Joseph and the group of men at the rear. After all, he's 12 and he's almost a man, right? He's kind of getting to that stage where he can hang out with the men. Talk to them about rugby, rifle, sunny skies, and what's the best camel to buy the next town. Whatever men spoke about. And it appears that Joseph thought Jesus was with Mary and the women 
and the other children in front of the caravan. After all, he was technically still a child, right? Not quite 13, not quite a man. So these parents both thought that he was somewhere else within the group, safely in the hands of family and friends. Little did they know that Jesus stayed behind until a full day's journey is completed and the families gather together for an evening meal. They realized when they called for Jesus, he didn't respond. As you always have done, as obedient, sinless, good boy at home in Nazareth. The discovery must have left him totally devastated. Had he, had he gone, lost along the way, had they somehow drifted away from the crowd? Had he somehow got hurt? By now night is falling. Where would he spend the night? In what danger was he? The apprehension must have been overwhelming as the fear increased minute by minute. Luke, who usually includes insightful details in his narrative, reduces their response to this devastating discovery by simply saying, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Wow, what an understatement. The question is, did they return right away? While night was setting in, would they travel alone back to Jerusalem in the dark? Even in daylight, a man and his wife traveling alone along, the way, along this way back to Jerusalem would be completely vulnerable to robbers and thieves. Hence the traveling in the group as a group in the caravan for safety. Traveling alone at night would be unthinkable under normal circumstances. But these are not normal circumstances for Joseph and Mary. Or would they wait out the night, fighting off the rising turmoil in their hearts as they waited for the first light to start out on a day's journey? And if they'd waited that night along the road to make a one-day journey back, where was Jesus? Who was feeding him? Was he safe? All this would be going through their heads, their hearts, their minds. These things would happen because this was a normal family who had lost a normal son and had left him behind in an abnormal way. But all the normal emotions and concerns and apprehension will be welling up in the chest. And they are imagining that he is in Jerusalem at his wit's end, crying and looking for his mother and father. We know differently because we have the privilege of Scripture. They did not. All they had was the concern of loving parents. We simply do not know what they did. But it's not difficult to conceive of this anxiety and this anguish. And Mary makes this anguish absolutely clear later when she finds Jesus. All we're told by Dr. Luke is that they returned to Jerusalem, constantly searching for him on the way as they made the day trip back to where they left him. Number two, the revelation of the boy Jesus. Joseph and Mary eventually make it back to Jerusalem. And the next several verses, we are brought to the heart of this event. And we do so by considering the amazement of the teachers, the astonishment of his parents, and the acknowledgement of the son himself. Verse 46. The amazement of the teachers. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It appears, according to most commentators, that these three days that's mentioned in Luke would be one day journey out, one day journey back, and one day looking for Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, that may be the case. It would be the minimum time spent. It may have been long if you did it differently, but let's take it as the case. One day journey out, one day journey back, one day looking for Jesus. The bottom line is that Jesus, while they were on the journey back and forth and looking, Jesus was for three days in Jerusalem, listening, asking questions, answering questions, and that is simply astounding. Some commentators seem to think that Jesus was asking questions so that he could find answers to things that he had not yet come to understand. In other words, this was a case of a curious 12-year-old simply taking the opportunity to pick the brains of wise old men on matters that he was still uh, ignorant. But both logic and the text refute that position. These men were the PhDs of theology in Jerusalem. You could get no higher group of educated men than these. They were gathered to exchange their respective theories on the scriptures. It is unlikely that they would make accommodation for a 12-year-old's intrusion and that for three days. It doesn't make sense. It's totally logical. But the text is even more convincing that he wasn't there just because he was curious. Number one, he was sitting among the teachers. Sitting was reserved for those who taught. It was an indication of authority. We see this 
from the from words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 35 when speaking about himself and he speaks about when they came to uh, arrest him he says um, have you come against me as, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me day after day I sat in the temple this temple and you did not seize me he sat there teaching I sat in the temple teaching so sitting in the temple in the way these men were sitting was because they were, they were engaging in understanding the scriptures which they would then teach to those who would listen. And was probably other people in the temple listening to them on the side. And Jesus, as a boy, did the unthinkable. He pulled up a chair and he sat down in the midst. He's lucky he didn't get a backhander. Because that would have been a thing that no little boy would have done. But Jesus was no ordinary little boy. There was a certain acknowledgement of mutual respect by having a 12-year-old sit among them that recognized the teachers of the day. And perhaps initially they were, uh, the eyebrows were raised, but after he opened his mouth and asked questions and answered questions, the ears were picked up and they were astounded by what he started to say to and ask them in questions. Number two, he was listening. So the scripture says he was sitting, Number two, he was listening. He was paying attention. He was hearing with understanding. He wasn't just asking questions and saying, oh, okay, fine, I'll think about it. As they answered, he understood those questions, uh, those answers, and um, based on that, he was already formulating his next question. Remember, he, was, he had this honed down to his skill. When he was a man of 30 and the Pharisees came to him, and probably some of his same teachers could have been there, we do not know, but he would answer their question with a question that left them without an answer. He was skilled at this. He was asking questions. He was not to, not to be informed, but he was interrogating them, asking in order to get a specific answer. This word, asking questions, is used also in Luke 23, when Jesus is being interrogated by those who are trying to murder him. Those are, going to, those are judging him, the soldiers, uh, Herod and all those who uh, are abusing him they asked him who struck you are you the king of the Jews those were not just questions that were given cordially in a friendly way they were interrogations of the Lord Jesus Christ and the same word is used here when it says that he asked questions he was interrogating this group of teachers in a way that left them completely astonished it's clear from Luke 2 that Jesus was engaged in a serious debate with the religious leaders of the, of the day. And he has been doing this for three days. The questions were not simple, but searching. His answers were astonishing. And verse 47 says that all who heard him were amazed at his, understa at his understanding and his answers. These men, these seasoned old teachers of the law in Jerusalem, had no idea who was sitting in their midst. They initially saw just a child from Nazareth, left behind by his parents. They soon realized that he was a prodigy, the likes of which they had never seen. What they did not realize was that the one sitting in their midst, listening to the discussions, asking and answering questions, was far more than a child prodigy. It was the God-man himself. And even as a boy, boy of 12, not yet having a beard, not yet having got into his adolescence, even then, as that tender age of 12, he was fully possessive of both his divine nature and his human nature, and there was the God-man himself, sitting close in a 12-year-old body, debating with the spiritual leaders of his day. The incarnate Son of God makes his inaugural appearance in the house of his father, revealing himself to the men who should have known better. They heard him and they were amazed. But they were not the only ones who were astonished. So were his parents. And this is amazing. The astonishment of his parents draws from Jesus a comment which we find perhaps astounding too. Verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father... And I have been searching for you in great distress. I'm not sure what astonished them. That they found him at all. 
or that they had found him in the temple. I'm not sure why that astonished them. They had probably searched high and low in all the obvious places in Jerusalem. They would probably gone to the homes of family and friends in Jerusalem and didn't find him there. They probably went down to the marketplace to see if he was perhaps there amongst what people were doing in the marketplace. They probably went to the place in Jerusalem where children were known to play and meet. The local skate park, the video mall, the, where men the boys playing soccer and rugby and whatever boys played in Jerusalem. We don't know. But they certainly left the, the, the searching the temple for lost. Eventually they go to the place where they had last seen him, the temple. And they find him and they are astonished. They're totally overwhelmed. They were both relieved and exasperated at the same time. Listen to his mother's words. The emotion of her words are almost tangible. The emotion is almost palpable in the way she addresses him. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. To paraphrase that in contemporary tones, child, why did you do this to us? Your father and I have been terribly worried looking for you. And this was the first time they had to raise their voice to reprimand this son that was brought into their life miraculously because of the hand of God upon them. At no time would that have happened in the life of Jesus, who was an ordinary boy, who was a normal boy, but because of his sinlessness, would have been a good boy, a boy who would live righteously, a boy who would not have told lies, stolen, grown angry, thrown tantrums, been disobedient. He'd have been the perfect son in this family, and now it seems to his mother and father, the perfect son has a blemish. It's hard to try to process this. In any other circumstance, with any other child, we you conclude that the son's behavior was unacceptable. But this was no ordinary sinful son. This was Jesus, the sinless son of God. Jesus was not being spiteful because he couldn't be. Jesus was not being disobedient because he couldn't be. Jesus was not being nasty because he couldn't be. Jesus chose this time, this occasion, to make his parents aware of who he was and what he was sent to do. He chose the time, he chose the place, and he chose what they would hear and see so they could recognize that he, at this point in his life, knew exactly who he was. In doing so, his response to Joseph and Mary was as astounding as his debate with the rabbis. Verse 49, the acknowledgement of the son. And he said to them, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. That is something that is hard to grapple with. Jesus was being obedient to his heavenly father, doing his father's business in his father's house. And it appears from Jesus' response that Joseph and Mary should have understood. Perhaps the things that the angel had told them before his birth should have prepared them. Perhaps the knowledge of his miraculous conception should have prepared them. All we can deduce from the text is they failed to know something they should have known. Like those wise, like those old teachers of the law in the temple, they were unprepared for the words that came out of his mouth. Perhaps after 12 years of raising a good, obedient, respectful, loving, but ordinary son, perhaps that had dulled the memory of his special beginnings. Perhaps they'd forgotten how special his birth was, how miraculous his conception was. And because he had been such a good, obedient son, they didn't have to worry about him. And it was perhaps that lack of concern over him that dulled the memories of who he really was. They both knew who he was, for they were both told who he was by the angel Gabriel. The holy thing that would be born of you would be called the Son of the Most High. They knew who he was. It is clear from the lack of understanding that, they'd done nothing, that he had done nothing special during his childhood to cause him to expect something out of the ordinary. It's obvious that where they are right now in, this life, in, his, in his life of up to 12 years, he had done nothing along the way to keep that uh, picture in the mind of his specialness, of his abilities, of, of who he was, because he had, he had become such an ordinary boy living an ordinary life as a normal boy would do, that they had forgotten who he was. And that in itself is proof that he did not turn 
clay pigeons into living doves and raise boys from the dead and lengthen planks. If he had, this would have been in their minds because Mary hid all these things in her heart. Nothing happened that she did not remember. And so special things about him could have been remembered. But there was nothing special other than that he was a very good, obedient son. Despite his sinless behavior as a child, he was nonetheless still a normal child, undistinguished from many his own age. It's often asked, did Jesus know he was God? When did he become aware that he, of his divine nature? It's clear from Jesus' actions, words, and response to Joseph and Mary that at this point, he knew precisely who he was. Since we have no other account of his childhood, we do not know if this self-realization was gradual or sudden. Remember, of all of Jesus' life, from the age of about 3 to 30, we have no knowledge. There's nothing written about him in all of the New Testament, except these 10 to 14 days. That's all we have. And so when we read this about him, it is significant that we realize that um, we know little about how he got here. But we do know that by the time he was 12, he did know that he was the eternal son of God. Even while living in, a, in the meager conditions in the house of a carpenter in Nazareth. The end of this pericope makes this inauguration of the God-man even more astounding when we see his unreserved submission to his parents. He has just revealed to his parents uh, uh, by what he says to them. He's just displayed his knowledge that was absolutely astounding. And at this point, when any other uh, person would have said, well, look how special I am, he submits to his humble, lowly parents. Mm -hmm as they go back to Jerusalem. Point three, the resoluteness of the boy Jesus. Verse 51, And he went down with them, and came to Nazareth, rather, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. I, I wonder what the subject matter was as they walked back to Nazareth. I mean, they, it was at least two to, three, two to three days. Like two days now, they're along in the caravan. Were they traveling alone? Were they traveling with another caravan? What were they saying to him? Were they asking for explanations? We got no idea. Luke does not um, privilege us with information. But we do know this. He went back with his parents and he was submitted to them. The eternal son of God, this God-man, submits to his human parents as a normal, obedient boy. His parents still do not understand what all this meant. We have no idea if their understanding ever improved. All we're told is that his mother treasured up all these things in the heart. While we know little about his parents, we are told two things about Jesus at this point. He was resolute in his submission to his earthly parents. And this is noteworthy. We live in a day and age where obedience to authority in general and to parents specifically uh, is horrendous. I should rather say the lack of obedience to authority and the lack of obedience to parents. Jesus Christ himself submitted and obeyed his parents a model for every child who lives in the house of their parents and who needs to acknowledge that God has placed them under the authority of the parents. They should submit and honor God by honoring them. Number two, he was resolute in his continued development under the favor of the Heavenly Father. At this point in time, most people could have said, well, I've arrived. I know enough about the scriptures to confound wise old men in Jerusalem. What more do I need to know? I've arrived. If I had to write an exam, I would have got 100 out of 50. If I had to be tested, the answers would have come out left, right, and center. I have arrived. I have no need to grow. I have no need to do any more. I am all I need to be. That is not the Jesus we're dealing with. At no time does he allow the humble and the limiting circumstances of his, of his human nature to be dominated by what was available to him with his divine nature. Verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The submission to normal human development was not accidental. It wasn't forced upon him. It's clear from the text that he was purposefully active in being developed. Under the submission to his parents, he'd still be able to have access to his father's teaching at the family table. You'd still have access to the synagogue or, uh, in, in Nazareth 
and listened to the, the scrolls be opened and read. And for the next 18 years of his life, he continued to be exposed to the scriptures more and more and more. And that was building up in his mind and in his heart an understanding that showed that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It is clear from the text that he was purposefully active in being developed. There was a progressive forcefulness in his determination to be increasing in wisdom. This is an active verb. It wasn't that he was kind of had wisdom put on him. He was actively engaged in gaining wisdom. And that wisdom brought him into the favor of both God and men. The result of all that was that the wisdom he had by the age of 12 would be expanded and increased over the next 18 years of consistent, obedient learning. You'd be physically prepared for the arduous life of an itinerant teacher as he taught throughout the land by living in his father's house, working in the carpenter shop, being developed physically, his stature, developing his mind and the wisdom that he had by submitting to his parents and all the authority that was around him. He increased in favor with God so that 18 years later, his father could say from heaven, you are my beloved son, but you I am well pleased. He increased, increased, he increased in favor with man. His righteous, impeccable life would not go unnoticed. Be sure of that. There was nothing outstanding about him that would make him seem uh, supernatural. Like, can you imagine living in a small town and as a man who never got angry, never lied, never stole, never said a harsh word, always stood up for what is right, lived a righteous, godly life? Would you think that they wasn't noticed? There was something to notice about him. In fact, his righteous, impeccable life would not go noticed. And his words would eventually cause men around to take notice. Matthew records this about him when he started speaking as this phenomenally different man from all those around him. And when Jesus finished, Matthew chapter 7, 28, and when Jesus finished his sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And he was teaching them as one who had authority not as the scribes, not as the scribes. Jesus was significantly different, although he never displayed supernatural powers to make that known to mankind. All that he did, and all that he came to be as a man, starting out as a boy of 12, as a man was gained through consistent, obedient uh, application of the scriptures in his life that he learned day by day at the feet of those he respected. An event covering about two weeks of the life of Joseph and Mary and his son was the means by which Dr. Luke takes to present to us the inauguration of this God-man. Quickly, questions in closing for ourselves. Do we apply ourselves to reading and learning God's Word so that we can increase in our understanding, in our knowledge, in our wisdom? Jesus did. If you're wearing a bracelet that says, what did Jesus do? Do this. Do what Jesus did. He allowed the word to increase his wisdom. If this was how Jesus learned the scriptures, we should do the same. Do we as fathers take the time, make the effort, give up the luxuries as Joseph did to take our sons and daughters to the scriptures? Are we consistently exposing them to God's word, evangelizing them? And those of them who claim salvation, that we are discipling them. Do we do this in such a way that our children are increasing in understanding of God's word and of their lives if he's calling them to himself? Do we do that as Joseph did? Do we endeavor to submit to God, to godly ordained authority, even when we think we know more? We always can find someone that we know more than them, and very often that person is in the place of authority, and we despise him for that. We look down upon them, condescendingly. God has put authority in place, whether it's government, whether it is, whether it is employers, whether it's parents, where God has placed authority in place, no matter what we know, no matter how experienced we are, we do bow to the authority as we honor God. They are his servants. Jesus did that. He learned by obedience. He learned the scriptures. He obeyed authority. He submitted as not only, not only that as he was a son of earthly parents, but even as a son of God himself. 
through both of those natures together and did what he had to do until the day when he was revealed and when he came to do the work he was sent to do and ultimately died on Calvary's cross. The example of the boy of Jesus in Luke 20, chapter 2, verse 39 to 52, provides us with every reason why we should make every endeavor to learn more about this boy, Jesus, as he lived a life to glorify his Father. May we pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example left by your son, one small glimpse into his life. We thank you for the truths we can learn from what he did, what he said. We pray earnestly that you may cause our hearts to desire to do the same, to honor you by reading and obeying your word, by submitting to your authority in our lives as you continue to work with us as your children. We ask you for your grace upon us now in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen.